Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Exodus this morning, and we're in Exodus chapter 26. So if you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 26. If you don't have a Bible and you want to follow along, we do have, like, I see one back there. We used to have a pile of them, but I guess they're, they're disappearing, which is good. It's okay. <laughs> if you need a Bible, we can get you one. Anybody need one? All right. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning, and uh, Lord, uh, just for the opportunity to study your word and to learn about, uh, learn more about you, and and in the process, learn more about ourselves. And this morning, Lord, as we study this chapter, chapter twenty-six, I pray that, Lord, you might uh, just reveal truth to us. And Lord, not only that we would have a head knowledge, but Lord, that your Spirit would speak to our hearts, and that Lord, we would uh, respond to your Word and to what your Spirit speaks to each one of us individually. So we thank you for your Word this morning. Lord, we want to lift up the missionaries that we support, Lord, the Johnsons, the, the Hooties, Lord, and the uh, Satria Wands, Lord, we pray for them. Uh, Lord, we ask your blessing upon them and, and the Tanagos as well. And Lord, we also uh, pray for those brothers and sisters throughout the world that are being persecuted for their faith, Lord God, this morning. Lord, that are suffering in prisons, that are suffering without food and shelter, Lord, and and uh, Lord, we just lift up our brothers and sisters to you throughout the world, and we pray your blessing upon them, Lord God. Lord, now we give you this time. We ask your blessing on it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Exodus chapter 26. Um, I don't know if, about you. If you've, Hopefully you've gone th- read through the Bible chapter by chapter and you've gone cover to cover, and, and uh, I've done that uh, before. I'm, I'm in the process of doing that right now once more. And, uh, you know, sometimes when you get to certain chapters in the book of, of the Old Testament, particularly in the Old Testament, it's easy to kind of go, you know what, this is kind of, I'm just going to skip over this because it's, it's kind of mundane. And, you know, reading chapter 26 might seem that way to you. Chapter 26 is very detailed in God's instructions for uh, erecting the tabernacle. Um, But there's going to be some things in here uh, that I hope that uh, will bless you as we we go through and study. So this tabernacle, uh, it's the dwelling place of the Lord, as uh, I was mentioning to the children here this morning. And it was literally a tent. It was portable, uh, and the reason why, of course, is because the children of Israel at this point in their history are traveling through the wilderness. They have not settled down into the promised land yet, and so God instructed them to build this tabernacle. It's like a portable temple, basically, and in reality, it's a tent, Um, and it was also known throughout the New Testament, or excuse me, throughout the Old Testament as the tent of meeting, because that is where the Lord God would meet with his people there above the mercy seat. And it's also known as the tent of testimony. And the reason why was because beneath the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant was where God instructed Moses to put the Ten Commandments, the, the tablets of the Ten Commandments. There'll be some other things later on in there, the, uh, a jar of manna uh, to remind him of God's provision and uh, Aaron's rod that budded. And we'll get to that as we go through uh, our stay in, in Exodus later on. So chapter 26, as I mentioned here, has some very specific details and specifications. 
And I always think about it. You know, here's Moses on the mountain with the Lord God, and the Lord God's giving him all these details. And I'm not a very detailed person, so I mean, I'd be probably writing down notes like crazy because I'm like, I'm going to forget this. Uh, but Moses didn't, praise the Lord. Um, but you wonder why. Why is it so specific? Why do we have to have the details, the actual dimensions, the numbers, and, and everything? Why is that so important? And I think there's three reasons. The first reason is because our worship of God should be intelligent. You might say, well, what does that have to do with anything? Do I have to be smart to worship the Lord? Um, that's not what I mean. Later on in verse 30 of Exodus chapter 26, the Lord's going to tell Moses, and you shall raise up the tabernacle according to its pattern, which you were shown on the, ma- on the mountain. So there's a pattern. Uh, see, we are to worship God in the manner that he reveals. And so he's revealing to the children of Israel, this is how I want you to build this tabernacle. This is where I'm going to meet with you. This is what you should do. So God is revealing his will in how man and how the children of Israel specifically should worship him. You know, sometimes people think that, you know, I just, I just, I'm going to worship the Lord the way I feel that I should worship the Lord. And, you know, that's not what God wants. God want, God has some very specific uh, instructions in the Bible on how he should be worshiped. And so that's the first reason. Our worship of God should be intelligent. We should know how God wants to be worshiped. The second reason for these specific details and specifications is, as I mentioned earlier, as I read actually earlier in Hebrews chapter 8, that the tabernacle and all the furnishings of the tabernacle, they serve as a, as a shadow, as a copy of what is in reality in heaven. So as we're going through this, you can just a picture in your mind. There's a glimpse of what heaven is like, what the throne room is like as we go through this. And then the third reason is that all the materials and all the details of this tabernacle are meant to point the children of Israel, and in fact us this morning, to Jesus Christ. Because it all points to him. It all, it all, it, it all is symbolic of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We're told in John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt, or tabernacled, among us and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth and so this is a chapter we really don't want to skip over we want to dig in and and uh, you might go well this is getting kind of mundane but hopefully i'll be able to pull out some things for us to learn this morning so the tabernacle as we see as we go through this this chapter it has four layers of coverings and each have their own significance as they are related to Jesus Christ. So let's look at the first layer of covering, covering excuse me, in verse 1 through 6. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine woven linen and blue, purple, and scarlet thread. With artistic designs of cherubim, you shall weave them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits, and the width of each curtain, four cubits. And every one of the curtains shall have the same measurements. Five curtains shall be cop- uh, coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue yarn on the edge of the curtain on the selvage of one set, and likewise you shall do on the outer edge of the curtain of the second set. Fifty loops you shall make in the one curtain, and 50 loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is on the edge, uh, excuse me, that is on the end of the second set. 
that the loops may be clasped to one another. And you shall make 50 clasps of gold and couple the curtains together with the clasps so that it may be one tabernacle. Now, if you're a seamstress, you're probably like, it makes perfect sense. I had to really think about this and kind of visualize it here. So this first covering, it's fine woven linen embroidered with artistic designs of cherubim using blue and purple and scarlet thread. Again, these all point to Jesus Christ. That linen, it's bleached white. And this covering is made up of four colors which are significant. Uh, they represent four aspects of Jesus Christ. So it's what's kind of fascinating. You got, you got four colors. You got uh, uh, four aspects of Jesus Christ, and they're supported by the four Gospels, which is kind of interesting. So this white linen, the very first uh, color, it represents the righteous humanity of Jesus Christ, you know, because as you get into the book of Revelation, the saints are, are in, dressed in white linen, and, and, and John asks, what, what's this white linen? And well, it's the righteous deeds of the saints, not our deeds. It's, it's the blood of Jesus Christ that washes us clean. And so this white linen, it's, the white color represents the righteous humanity of Jesus Christ. And what's interesting is Luke's gospel, it showcases the humanity, the righteous humanity of Jesus, Jesus Christ. Then we get the blue thread. And blue in the Bible is really a picture, is symbolic of the deity. It's a symbolic of heaven. And so the blue thread is the symbolic of the deity of Jesus Christ. And in fact, John's gospel showcases the deity of Jesus Christ. Well, then we get the purple thread. Purple in those days was uh, not a sign of old age. You know, when I get old, I'm going to wear purple. I remember that phrase. Um, it's actually, you know, majesty. Kings, it was a very costly uh, fabric because of the dye that was used for it. And so uh, it was basically royalty wore purple. And so purple thread, it points to the majesty of Jesus Christ. And Christ's role as the king, as Messiah, is showcased in the Gospel of Matthew. And then finally, we have the scarlet thread, which scarlet always reminds us of blood. And, it's, and it, it points to the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross. And the last gospel, Mark's gospel, it showcases the suffering servant. So we have these four colors. And there was to be cherubim, which are angels, embroidered on this inner covering. And angels... We see that throughout the Bible, even in the life of Jesus Christ on earth. Remember, in fact, we just celebrated Christmas on earth. Angels were present at Christ's birth. You can read about that in Luke chapter 2. Angels were present during his life when he was tempted in the wilderness. Uh, Matthew 4 verse 11. And angels were present at the end of his life when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was ministered to by angels. That's in Luke 22, verse 43. So even in Christ's life on earth, there were angels around him during his life. But we also know that around the throne in heaven, there are angels all around. And I don't I'm not going to read the verses to you, but Psalms 80, verse 1, if you're taking notes. Isaiah 37, verse 16, Ezekiel 10, verse 3, Revelation 5, verse 11, and that's just a few of them. There's many more verses that speak about angels around the throne in heaven. So this is all pointing. It's a, it's a copy and a shadow of what's in heaven. Well, let's talk about the dimensions of these curtains. 
They were to be 28 cubits long. Now a cubit is approximately 18 inches. So these were to be approximately 42 feet long. They were to be four cubits wide, which would be six feet wide. And there would be five curtains coupled together and then another five curtains coupled together for a total of 10 curtains. So this covering would be 42 feet long by 60 feet wide when you coupled all those curtains together. In verse 6 it says, And you shall make 50 clasps of gold and couple the curtains together with the clasps so that it may be one tabernacle. And I'm thinking about this myself, and I'm thinking, why not just make one great big, you know, 42 by 60 canvas or, you know, linen covering? Why not, why not do that? To me, that would make more sense. Well, if you think about it from a practical standpoint, the children of Israel, they're going to be, as the Lord guides them throughout the wilderness, they're going to be tearing this thing down and putting it back up. And, tear, and to make it portable, make it very easy to be portable, it's much easier to have sections rather than this great big covering to drag around so uh, that would be a practical reason but I think it's also there's a spiritual I think significance as well not only is the tabernacle you know uh, appointed to Jesus Christ but but we are the body of Christ right here on earth the church is the body of Christ and I think this is a foreshadowing of the body of Christ because in Romans 12 verse 5 Paul says so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. We're joined together, become one body here in Calvary Chapel, Rochester, or in the church universal. So each set of these five curtains would be clasped to the other set with 50 gold rings. And, you know, as we go through this, and we talked about it last uh, two weeks ago, um, there, a lot of the gold, uh, a lot of the articles and the furnishings in the temple was made out of acacia wood, and it would be overlaid with gold. And we talked about the acacia wood being representing Christ's humanity. Um, but here, these rings in the inner, this most inner covering was pure gold. There's no wood involved with it. And, you know, as I mentioned, wood represents Christ's humanity. And so these innermost clasps would have no impurities, no mixtures, and in a sense, no humanity. It's just pure, pure gold. So that's the first layer of covering. Now we get to the second layer of covering in verse 7. You shall also make curtains of goat's hair to be a tent over the tabernacle. You shall make 11 curtains. The length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits and the width of each curtain 4 cubits. And the 11 curtains shall all have the same measurements. And you shall couple five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves. And you shall double over the sixth curtain at the forefront of the tent. You shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain, that is the outmost, outermost in one set, and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain of the second set. And you shall make 50 bronze clasps. Put the clasps into the, hope, into the loops and couple the tent together, that it may be one. The remnant that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle, and a cubit on one side and a cubit on the other side of what remains of the length of the curtains of the tent, shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle, on this side and on that side, to cover it. So the second covering was goat's hair. It would have been very thick, uh, heavy, woven cover. 
And, and I was thinking about it. I, I've heard people teach, well, you know, they're, they're, it, it was black wool, and so that represents, you know, this, or it was white wool. Uh, we don't know what wool, what color wool it was. But I think the goat itself is significant. Because what it reminds me of is the scapegoat in Leviticus chapter 16, the Azazel, as it's known. I don't know if I pronounced that right, but the scapegoat. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest was to t- they were to have two goats. One goat would bear the sins of the people. It would be the sin offering goat that would be sacrificed there in the temple or in late, earlier in the tabernacle. The other goat would be known as the scapegoat. I want to read this to you out of Leviticus chapter 16, verse 21 through 22. This is the procedure with the scapegoat. It says, Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat into the wilderness. So if you can picture what's happening, they're confessing their sins. In a sense, they're transferring their sins onto the scapegoat, and then they're sending it far off into the wilderness, never to return back to to Jerusalem. That symbolizes the reality of, of what David talks about in uh, Psalm 103. In verse 12 of Psalm 103, it tells us, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. I don't know about you, but that verse is a beautiful verse for me. Because, you know, not only do we confess, when we confess our sins, we're forgiven of our sins. Have you ever had somebody sin against you? And they say, you know, please forgive me. And, and, and you go, yeah, I forgive you. But if it, depending on what it is, sometimes it's hard to forget. You see them again and you're reminded of what they did. You know, it just comes back to you. Well, that's not the way it is with God. Because of the scapegoat or because of Jesus Christ, when we're forgiven, we're not only forgiven of our sins, but our sins are removed. They're completely taken away. They'll never be brought back to us again. Praise the Lord. That's something to be happy about this morning. So let's talk about the dimensions of this second covering. It's got the same width as the linen covering, the first covering, four cubits, which would have been six feet, but it's longer. The other one was 28 cubits. These are 30 cubits. So there'd be an extra 18 inches to hang over each side. And if you think of it from a practical standpoint, that would provide uh, a little bit of weatherproofing, uh, protecting the the inner cover from the elements. It'd be just that that much longer over to protect the inner uh, linen covering. And what's also interesting is there's an extra 11th curtain. The other one had 10 curtains. This one's got 11 curtains. Five curtains are joined together like the earlier cover, but six curtains are joined together on, on the other side. And half of the six, so if you can picture it, half of the sixth is folded over on the front of the tabernacle, and the other half of the six is, hangs over the, rest, the back of the tabernacle. So this would provide more shelter or more protection from the elements uh, inside of the tabernacle. And for you people that are sewers or seamstresses, you think about this here. So, you know, they've got these, instead, they're not sewed together. You've got these, you know, 10 rows of, of, of fabric, basically, you know, coupled together. 
and then so now you've got so you got 10 and now you've got an 11th one and you're supposed to shift it over so that a half hangs over to one side and half hangs over the other side so what you've basically done is you've shifted over those seams does that make is that that's pretty smart god knows what he's doing but anyway so it protects it that much more i don't I, that was a revelation to me so <laughs> anyways i thought it was pretty smart and i'm like ah that makes sense to me um, well these curtains these five uh, five curtains in one set and six and the other were coupled with bronze clasps and again everything is significant bronze speaks of the fire of judgment and we see that in numbers 21 we see that other places in scriptures but numbers 21 in particular when the children of Israel is are, as they're going through the, the, uh, the, the wilderness and they start grumbling and complaining and the Lord sends serpents to bite and, and many of the, the, the children of Israel die as a result of that and Moses cries out, God's raising Moses up to be an interceder and an and a, uh, intercessory person and so uh, a mediator I should say and so, so Moses cries out to the Lord and the Lord says, okay, here's what you're going to do. Take, uh, uh, make a bronze snake and put it on a pole. And if anyone looks at that pole, they'll be healed. And what a picture that is. When we get to Numbers 21, we'll, we'll dive into that. But that's really a, a picture of Jesus Christ. Because he was raised up. He was lifted up from the earth on the cross. And he bore your and my judgment. And, and so if you think about these people in, in the wilderness there, uh, you know, if they didn't look up at the snake, they wouldn't be healed. But they had to look up to the snake, just like you and I. We have to look up to Jesus Christ and recognize that he took our price. He paid our price on the cross. And it's through his sacrifice that we're healed. And so uh, this, these, these bronze clasps speak of judgment. Of course, Christ taking our judgment upon himself. Then we have the third and the fourth layer of covering there in verse 14. You shall also make a covering of ram skins dyed red for the tent and a covering of badger skins above that. So let's look at the third layer, the covering of ram skins dyed red. And of course, when you think of red right away, you think of blood. And so, you know, we can think of Christ's atoning sacrifice for our sins. But I also think of the ram itself. And I think the ram itself speaks of God's provision of the Savior. You know, we didn't have to figure out how to get to heaven. God provided salvation for us through Jesus Christ. Remember on uh, Mount Moriah when Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac in obedience to the Lord. There was a ram caught in the thicket. And, and the ram was the substitute for Isaac. He didn't have to sacrifice Isaac. He sacrificed the ram that was caught in the thicket. Thick, thicket excuse me. And what's interesting, I'm going to quote this out of King, the King James Version because the New King James kind of misses it. But the King James Version, I think, covers it really beautifully. It's in Genesis chapter 22, verses 7 and 8. And I just have verse 8 on the screen, or I will have verse 8 on the screen, but let me read verse 7 first. Genesis 22, verse 7. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? So Isaac's, you know, he's going with his, God, with his dad and he knows that there's going to be a sacrifice. And he's like, Okay, we got the wood for the fire. Uh, you know, we've got, uh, um, we've, we've got fire itself because they didn't have lighters back then. We got our fire. Um, where's the lamb that's going to be sacrificed? And I love what God says here in the King James Version in particular, verse 8 of Genesis 22. 
And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went, both of them, together. It's, it, it, in the Hebrew, it's God will pro- provide himself. God will make the provision. God will be the, uh, the sacrifice through Jesus Christ. In fact, we read about that in Galatians 4, verses 4 through 5. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. God provided salvation for you and I. I think that's what this covering points to. We get the the fourth and the final layer, badger skins. It's interesting because we don't know if that's literally badgers or some kind of, you know, some other kind of animal, but it's, we read it here, it's translated badger skins. Uh, Badger skins would have been leather-like. It would have been tough and a waterproof outer covering. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 10, we read this. It says, I clothed you in embroidered cloth and gave you sandals of badger skin. So it was some kind of a leather-like material or or type of leather that that this badger skins uh, would be uh, used for. In fact, if you go through and you look up badger skins in the Bible, Numbers chapter 4, I think it is, it's mentioned throughout it because I think it's in Numbers 4. It's when the children of Israel, when the Lord says, okay, when you take down the tabernacle, this is how you're to disassemble it, and this is what you're to do with each article of the, of the tabernacle. And in almost every case, he says, cover it with badger skins. So you, you roll up the tabernacle, you put all the things in, and then you cover it. It has an outer covering of badger skins because it would have been durable and waterproof and stuff for traveling through the wilderness. So it's, uh, it's necessary for the harsh elements of the wilderness, but it wasn't pretty. In fact, it was very ugly. Um, from the outside, if you were to look at this tabernacle, you know, all these coverings, from the outside, it probably would look like any other Bedouin tent that existed in that time, any tent of the Midianites or anything. It probably looked just like any other tent. But what was inside was what was beautiful. What was inside is what was glorious. And that speaks to the humanity of our Savior, this outer covering. Because in Isaiah 53, verse 2, it says, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a, dry, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. If, if they would have had a, a, a beauty contest in Judea at the time when Jesus was, was alive, he probably wouldn't have won for the most handsome Messiah. You know, he probably wouldn't have won that. Uh, there was no beauty in him that we should desire him. The beauty was in who he was, who was underneath. The disciples, however, on the Mount of Transfiguration, they got a glimpse of that glory, of that beauty, uh, of when Jesus was transfigured uh, before their eyes. In fact, Peter kind of refers back to it in 2 Peter 1, verse 16. He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And he's referring back to the Mount of Transfiguration. John refers to it in his gospel. In John 1, verse 14, he says, we beheld his glory. Again, that was, it was not during the normal everyday time ministering with him, but when he was transfigured before them. So it speaks of this last covering, speaks of the humanity of our Savior. Hebrews 2 verse 14 says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself 
likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. See, it was necessary for Christ to be a, a man, to be fully man and fully God, because he had to pay the price for us as humans. Although he was fully God, he was without sin. So now we get to the boards for the tabernacle, which is really the structure uh, of the tabernacle itself. Verse 15. And for the tabernacle, you shall make the boards of acacia wood standing upright. Ten cubits shall be the length of a board, and a cubit and a half shall be the width of each board. Two tenons shall be on each board for binding one to another. Thus you shall make for all the boards of the tabernacle, and you shall make the boards for the tabernacle, 20 boards for the south side. And we'll go, there's more to this, but we'll stop here verse. First of all, acacia wood. I mentioned earlier, it's, it refers or it's a pictures Christ's humanity. All of these boards later on in verse 29 are to be overlaid with gold. And the dimensions of these boards, they're 10 cubits tall, which would have been 15 feet tall, one and a half cubits wide, which would have been two feet, three inches approximately. And there'd be 20 for each side. So the structure of the tabernacle, one side wall, would be 15 feet tall by 45 feet long. So we actually know, we could visualize what this tabernacle, how big it was. In fact, if you go to Israel, they have uh, one in, in uh, Timna Park, I believe it is. They have, a, they have a, a life-size replica of what the tabernacle, based on these instructions. You could go there and you can visit it and see it for yourself. So these boards, each of these boards is going to have two tenons for placing in sockets, and then they'll have rings that bars will be running through uh, to join the boards together. One of the things that kind of jumps out at me when I was studying is why uh, would the boards, I can understand the 10 cubits, but, but why one and a half cubits? I, I, I don't know, I'm like, I'm kind of like monk, you know, I like, I like nice round numbers and stuff, and you ever seen that television show? But anyways, it's like, why, why have a, a fractional number? And I, I, reflecting on that, I think that's significant too. Because as these boards are joined together, especially if you have two of these boards, you have one that's one and a half, and you have another one and a half, and if you know your math, one and a half and one and a half makes three. It makes a whole number. And I think that's really a beautiful picture of the body of Christ. Because two joined together makes a whole. See, when you and I are separate, when we're out of fellowship, when we're alone, we're not strong. We're less effective. But when we're joined together in a fellowship, that's when we're strong. The, the reason why is because we all have differing gifts, and so we come together, we, we bring our spiritual gifts, we bring all our talents, we, we, we can, can encourage one another, we can minister, we can edify one another. You can't do that by yourself. I know some people that like, you know, I, I, don't, I don't need to go to church. I don't need church. I'll just, you know, watch TV at home. And, you know, they're fooling themselves in thinking that they're maturing in Christ because you're not. The only way you mature is when you're in a body and you're committed to a body. That's, that's the honest truth. You have to be committed to a body, whether it's this body or another local body. You need to be committed because that's where the growth comes. That's where the strength is, is when we're joined together. Another thing that's kind of... Oh, actually, let me read this. Ephesians 4, verse 16. Paul, speaking about that joining together in a fellowship, he says, from whom the whole body, 
joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. That's how we grow when we're joined together. Now, another thing that's kind of interesting is all of the cur individual curtains and all of the individual boards were to be of the exact same size and dimension. And again, I think that is significant as well. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10, Paul says this to the Corinthians. He says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. You know, it doesn't matter who you are or what ministry position in the body you occupy. If you're trying to promote yourself, you're going against God's pattern for his church. If you're trying to promote yourself above others, that's not what God's pattern is for the church. God's pattern is that we're all one beneath the cross. We're to be submitted one to another. Well, let's talk about the sockets for these boards. Verse 19. You shall make 40 sockets of silver under the 20 boards, two sockets under each of the boards for its two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle, the north side, there shall be 20 boards, and there 40 sockets of silver, two sockets under each of the boards. For the right side of the tabernacle westward, you shall make six boards, you shall also make two boards for the two back corners of the tabernacle. They shall be coupled together at the bottom, and they shall be coupled together at the top by one ring. Thus it shall be for both of them. They shall be for the two corners, so there shall be eight boards with their sockets of silver, 16 sockets, two sockets under each of the boards. So now the, the seamstresses are going, huh? And the carpenters are going, ah, oh, I get it. <laughs> so the sockets... And, you know, I went to some website and I found what, you know, uh, kind of a artist's idea of what it might have looked like. We don't really know. That's like, that's not, that's what it looks like. But hopefully to help you get a little idea of what they're talking about. The tenons are those on the bottom of the board. Uh, you know, you do that woodworking typically. Um, and then the sockets would be the bottom part portion where the tenons insert into those sockets. And... Uh, that formed the foundation for the walls of this tabernacle, those sockets. It was basically a temporary foundation. You know, you can't dig it into the ground, but it was, it was resting there on top of the ground. It gave, it gave support to the structure. What's interesting is that these sockets were to be made of silver. Again, nothing's insignificant. Silver in the Bible speaks of redemption. You can read about that in Numbers 18, verse 16, Joshua 24, verse 32, Zechariah 11, verses 12 through 13, and other places. Silver speaks of redemption. And it's significant that the foundation of this tabernacle was made from silver because the foundation of our faith is your and my redemption in Jesus Christ. That's our foundation. Without the foundation, those boards would basically just be sitting in the dirt. And, you know, we're in the world, but we've been saved out of the world we have, because of that, we have that foundation. We've been redeemed out of the world. So I see a lot of significance in those sockets. How about the bars for the boards? Uh, verse 26, And you shall make bars of acacia wood, 
five for the boards on one side of the tabernacle, five bars for the boards on the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the boards on the side of the tabernacle for the side westward, for the far side westward, excuse me. The middle bar shall pass through the midst of the boards from end to end. You shall overlay the boards with gold and make their rings of gold as holders for the bars and overlay the bars with gold. So all of these boards, not only would they be resting in sockets, but they'd have these bars running through, uh, crossbars, so to speak, running through these rings to provide extra stability to the structure. And uh, I was looking at, reflecting on this, you know, what's the significance of this? And, and uh, some people, and I'm going to say some because I'm, I'm not 100% sold on it, but some people say that the five bars are represented by the five gifts given to the church, and they quote, Ephesians 4 verses 11 and 12 says, and he himself gave to some to be apostles and some, uh, some prophets, some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So you say, well, that's what that's pointing to, which it could be. The only reason why, and the reason why I'm kind of hedging here is because I believe that those are four gifts. I believe pastor and teacher is one gift. I don't, I don't separate those out, but uh, that, that's neither here nor there. Uh, if that's what it, if that is what it's symbolizing, it's definitely intriguing, I think, and it's very interesting. All right, verse thirty it says, "And you shall raise up the tabernacle according to its pattern which you were shown on the mountain." So, as I've been going through this, I wonder if you're thinking like I'm thinking. It's like, where did they get all the bronze, all the silver, and all the gold? I mean, we're talking about a lot of fine metals, precious metals, for the construction of the tabernacle. Well, if you were here a few weeks ago in chapter 25, the Lord told the children of Israel, or told Moses, to collect a free will offering from the people, and they gave. They gave from their hearts. They gave all the materials. But again, where did they get this stuff? Where did the people get the stuff? After all, they were slaves. Slaves usually don't have a lot of gold and silver and bronze, so they don't have a lot of riches. You know, it's estimated that the total quantity of gold collected, because if you think of all that, we have the dimensions, so we can kind of calculate how much gold it would take to plate everything and then the silver sockets and all that stuff. It's the total gold collected was approximately one ton of gold would be required for this tabernacle. One ton. The silver would be three and three quarters tons. The bronze would be two and a half tons. In today's pricing of course i i don't know if that's accurate because you know the troy ounces or the prices of gold fluctuates but it approximately at least at the time when i did this it would be worth over 13 million dollars the material for this tabernacle in fact the golden lampstand we talked about that last uh, two weeks ago the golden lampstand in the tabernacle it weighed a talent and would be worth today about a half million dollars alone because of its gold. So where did a bunch of Egyptian slaves get their wealth? Well, they got it from Egypt. Back in Exodus chapter 12, before the children of Israel left Egypt, the Lord said to, for them to talk to their neighbors and to ask for articles of gold and fine clothing and all that stuff. And, and uh, the people were so glad to get rid of the children of Israel because of all the plagues. They're like, you can have everything here. Take, here's my mother's ring. You know, you can have that. You know, take everything you want. Uh, and, and basically, the Bible says that they plundered the Egyptians. If you think about it, 
the children of Israel suffered in bondage for about 400 years, actually a little bit more than that, 400 years roughly. During that time, they received no wages. And uh, in effect, what the Lord's doing is he's giving them back pay for those 400 years of wages that they didn't earn, in a, in a sense. You might say, well, why, why are you bringing this up? Well, if you think about it, this pattern for the tabernacle, it was very specific because of the purpose. Remember the three purposes I mentioned? They point to Jesus Christ. It's a reality of what's in heaven, and God instructs us on how he should be worshipped. So there's a reason for the pattern. There's also a reason for your and my life. God has a purpose for our lives. And just like the children of Israel, sometimes we go through hardships. Sometimes we go through periods of time, you go, well, well that was a lost time. What, ha what happened, you know? It's like... Man, those years were wasted because of all the suffering maybe we've gone through, whatever it is. For the children of Israel, that suffering, it was, they were paid. They were paid for that suffering. Uh, it wasn't, wasn't wasted. Our suffering that you and I go through in this life, it's not wasted either. And I say, why, why is this happening? I, I don't know why. I'm sure when Moses was receiving these instructions for the tabernacle, he's probably going, Huh? Why? Why the sockets? Why the, you know, it, it probably didn't make any sense to him. It does now, I'm sure. In heaven, he's looking back now. I'm sure it makes perfect sense to him. But for you and I, we go through periods in our lives and we go, I, this does not make sense what I'm going through. Why is the Lord allowing me to go through this? Even our suffering, God has a plan and a purpose in that too. And he can take that and, and it's not wasted time if you, if you allow it to not be wasted time if you allow the Lord to, to teach you and to minister to you, and if you grow through what you're going through, it's not wasted. So hopefully that encourages you this morning. Well, let's continue on here. Got a few more things to look at, and that's the veil. Verse 31, You shall make a veil woven of purple, blue, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim, you shall hang it upon the four pillars of acacia wood with overlaid, overlaid gold, with gold, excuse me. Their hooks shall be gold upon four sockets of silver, and you shall hang the veil from the clasps. Then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. You shall hang the veil from the clasps. Then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy. You shall set the table outside the veil and the lamp stand across from the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south and you shall put the table on the north side. So this veil was the barrier that separated the holy place from the most holy place. The most holy place would be where the ark of the covenant stood. That's where God would meet with the children of Israel above the mercy seat. Outside of the holy place would be the table of showbread and the golden lampstand. And later on, there'll be the table of, of incense too. The altar of incense will be in there as well. But that was that separation there within the tabernacle, that holy place, the most holy place, only the high priest could enter into there and only once a year on the day of atonement and not without blood. It was meant to show the holiness of God and that man is separated from a holy God because of our sin. 
And when Jesus died on the cross, if you were calling the Gospels, the veil in the temple there in Jerusalem was torn from the top to the bottom. And that veil was like a foot thick, if I recall right. It was huge. And it was, it was ripped from the top to the bottom, showing that, the most, that access to the most holy place, access to the throne, is now available because of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. This veil is, is, is symbolic of that separation, but Jesus Christ tore the veil apart. In fact, the veil is in itself a picture of Jesus Christ. We find that uh, in uh, scriptures. In, I think it's in Hebrews. I'm looking at my notes and it doesn't show too good. But. It says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. So his flesh, in a sense, when it being torn on the cross, it's, it's, it's pictured in this veil when it was torn in the temple. So again, the colors of the veil, they're very fitting for the symbolism, the, the humanity, the, 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 the majesty, the, the deity, and, the, and, the, and the, uh, the blood, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins. And we get, finally we get the door of the tabernacle. Verse 36 you shall make a screen for the door of the tabernacle woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen made by a weaver. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be gold and you shall cast five sockets of bronze for them. So a couple last things to mention about the tabernacle. First of all, there's no windows. No windows whatsoever. Those heavy coverings... They go all the way down to the outer ones, especially go all the way down to the ground. Uh, there would be no light within that tabernacle. It would have been pitch black in there. The only light would be from that golden lampstand. The golden lampstand, of course, we talked about that in a couple chapters back, is a, uh, is a picture of Jesus Christ. That center, that center uh, column or the center candle or, or lamp is Jesus, and we are the branches that are attached to it. You look, think of that menorah, those, those branches that come, they're attached to the one. Jesus Christ is the one. He provides the light. The only light was provided by the golden lampstand. Jesus said this in John 8, verse 12. He says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. If you're not a believer here this morning and you're, you're like trying to understand, you can't make sense of what's going on in your life, if you come and put your faith in Christ Jesus for your save, to be your Savior, you will understand. Life will make sense. You know, it's a fascinating thing, um, talking about all these, these things in the Bible that point to Jesus. Um, I have a friend that was Jewish, and he, became, he came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And all the things that he learned in synagogue, you know, because they, they study the, the, the books, these books of the Bible, the Old Testament. All those things, it just like popped in his mind. He goes, wow, I see Jesus. And, and I would sit down with him and he's like, he's a new believer. And this guy, is, he could be like a Bible college professor. I mean, he was sharing all this stuff out of the Old Testament. Like this points to Jesus and that point, and, I, and this makes sense now and stuff. It all points to Jesus. So there was no windows and only the light, which Jesus is the only light. He's the light of the world. Also, there's only one entrance into this tabernacle. There's not a back door. There's no uh, emergency egress, if you're safety-minded, sorry. There's no emergency egress. Uh, there's just one door, one entrance into the tabernacle. Jesus said this in John 10, verse 9, I am the door. 
If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And later on in 14, verse 6 of chapter of John, Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we've just gone through this chapter looking at all these things, this tabernacle, and how they point to Jesus Christ. And as we continue through the book of Exodus, we're going to continue seeing, and, and that's one of my favorite things to do when I go through the Old Testament, is look for Jesus in the, on the pages of the Old Testament, because they, they point to Jesus in so many ways, and I, I, love, I love discovering that. I encourage you, you know, I, I, I didn't touch on some of the things in the tabernacle, and I believe every aspect of it, there's symbolism, there, there points, there's a reason for that there, and I didn't touch on all of them. So I encourage you to go home, maybe, do a little research on your own, see if you can figure out some more stuff, because it's there, it's there. It's, the Bible, you know, it's, it's so simple for these, like the children that we pray for this morning, they just need to understand that Jesus loves them. The Bible tells them so. That's all that they need to understand. But the Bible isn't that simple that the, 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 the most profound scholar in the world will never get to the bottom of understanding all of the uniqueness and all the intricacies and everything that God has in his word for his people. So I encourage you to study your Bible. Come back next week and say, Pastor Don, you didn't cover this, and look, this points to Jesus. I'll go, wow, that's pretty cool. I'll, re- I'll save it, and I'll use it next time. <laughs> All right. Hey, why don't you stand up? Let's go, Lord, in prayer. This morning, we have communion.